morning. Well, let's preach about them for a little while. Matthew chapter 27, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 45. Matthew chapter 27, verse number 45, we come to Calvary, and the Lord Jesus is hanging upon the cross. The Bible says in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Now I want you to look back at verse 46. The Bible says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I love you this morning. I love you because you first loved me. I didn't know what love was until I saw Calvary. Father, I just pray that this morning we'd not do anything to stifle the ministration of the Holy Spirit in this place. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open, Lord, not just in the singing, not just in the praising, but in the preaching as well, as you would minister truth to our hearts and minds. Lord, that your will would be accomplished for your glory and honor. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The Word of God is full of references to God Himself. All through the Word of God, you'll find God addressed by various titles and various names. Of course, we know that He is the Lord. We know that He is Jehovah. We know He is the Rock of Ages. He is the Ancient of Days. On and on we could go through the Word of God. But the Lord Jesus had one title that He favored above all others when He spoke about God. And over and over again, he called him his father. He would speak about how he had been sent to do his father's will and how finishing his father's work was his meat and was his good pleasure. Even early on, when he was a child at the temple, he spoke about being about his father's business. When he comes to the cross, he begins by speaking about his father. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he closes out the cross by crying out, Father, into thy hands do I commend my spirit. And yet we find in the Word of God that there are three instances in which Jesus did not call God his father, but instead referred to him as my God. Now, this is not a unique title all through Scripture. You'll find uh, references. You know, the psalmist said, The Lord is my shepherd. And, uh, of course, you know, we've seen time and again, Paul said, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But it was unique and unusual for the Lord to use this term referencing His Father. He always spoke in familial reverence and love and intimacy about God as His Father. But on three occasions in the Word of God, when speaking about God, in some way He distances Himself from that relationship and instead refers to Him in the manner that humanity knows Him, which is as God. And I want us to notice these three occasions this morning. We're going to pray the Lord will show us some things through it. The first occasion is here on Calvary. And I'd like to call this, uh, this address the address of rending or the appeal of rending. 
A very unusual thing took place on Calvary here. And I'll go ahead and confess to you that there's more I don't know about what happened in this darkness than there is that I do know. I am not ashamed to admit to you that there are mysteries about the Godhead and mysteries about the relationship between God the Son and God the Father uh, that I probably will never understand till I get to heaven. But we do understand that something must have changed in that relationship in some way, uh, albeit temporary, in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Now, if we try to define that relationship, I think we'd probably run out of time and words before we get it all defined. But the way that the Lord Jesus defined the relationship He had with the Father was He said, He called it the glory that they had before the world was. And He described it by saying, I and my Father are one. They were perfectly harmonious in will and in mind and in intent and in love and in passion and in plan and in desire. There was no daylight, we might say, between the Father and the Son. They were united and they were harmonious in everything that they did. Now, somebody's going to say, Preacher, are you telling me that that would change on Calvary? Are you telling me that the Son was not, did not have the interest of the Father or the Father the interest of the Son? No, but I am saying this. If there was some way that Jesus was going to get us to God, and if there was no daylight between God the Father and God the Son, there wasn't no place for you or I to fit. Somebody say amen to that. But enough daylight was created betwixt the two. Somehow that relationship was for a brief moment altered in some way that allows you and me to have a relationship with God. We might say that that relationship was in some ways rended in two so that we might be made a part of it. And I want you to think about three thoughts with me before we move on. I want to say, number one, on the cross of Calvary, that the communion was rent between the Father and the Son. Now, when the Lord Jesus cries out and says this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he is quoting Psalms 22. And in Psalms 22, the inner mechanics of the judgment of God are poured out and laid forth just exactly what took place on the cross of Calvary. Has it ever occurred to you that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus was made sin for us? The Bible said, For He hath made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Has it ever dawned on you that on the cross of Calvary, all of the riches of the glory of Christ Jesus were somehow took from His account and credited to ours? And there on the cross, He who has all the splendor of the heavens and of glory was made poor for your sakes and mine. In fact, that's how Paul defines the grace of God. He says, you know the grace of God, uh, that Jesus Christ, though He were rich, uh, yet became He poor, that through His poverty we might be made rich. There on the cross of Calvary, the holiness of God was satisfied. You understand that whenever man sinned, that it put a a disarray in the relationship between man and God because God has a holiness that must be upheld. Uh, God, when He said, the soul that sinneth it shall die, then the soul that sinneth it shall die. And there must be a vindication of that holiness. This could only take place by the wrath of God being poured out. And certainly on the cross of Calvary, the wrath of God was poured out. But in the midst of all those things, we find something much more nuanced and interesting that takes place. The communion that had been had between the Father and the Son, as a Father, as a Son, I didn't say the relationship, but the communion was disrupted for a brief while. In other words, when Christ hung on the cross, 
Though he was the Son of God, and he never ceased for a moment to be the Son of God, God was not treating him as a son. God was treating him as a sinner. And when he addresses his father, he does not address him as a father, but as his God. It reminds you and I that it's God with whom we have to do. There's coming a day, no matter what we claim our familiar intimacy to be with God, there's coming a day when we will face him as God. have to give an account for our life and the way that we've lived. The communion was rent, and there's things I don't understand, and I can't explain, and I promise if you had a hundred questions, then I wouldn't have a hundred answers. But I do know that in some way that relationship or that communion was disrupted and was rent. Let me say number two, not only was the communion rent, but our condemnation was rent on the cross. It's interesting that this question is asked. You've heard me say before that God only asks rhetorical questions. God never asks a question because He needs an answer. He's omniscient. And this is true of Jesus, just as it's true of God the Father. But what is especially interesting is that you have a question asked by God to God. Question in the Godhead. Why was this question asked? I'd propose to you this simple thought, though there's many things we could probably say about it. This question was asked... Because he wanted you and I to give the answer. Jesus knew the answer. God the Father knew the answer. Jesus knew that God knew that Jesus knew. There was no practical reason for their benefit to ask this question. But the question was asked for this simple reason, that you and I might ask the same question. Just as the uh, Jewish individual had been asking ever since David pinned down in the psalm, who is this mysterious person? God's never forsook anybody. God's never turned His back on anybody. God's never walked away from anybody. But somehow David, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, speaks of a man whom God would forsake. And here he hangs upon the cross of Calvary, forsaken by man and by God. The reason this took place, remember I said a little while ago, That little daylight had to be made so we could get in. The reason that he forsook Jesus was so that he might not have to forsake you and me. This is what we call the vicarious death of Christ. Another good term is the substitutionary death of Christ. In other words, he died in our place. Now somebody's going to say, but preacher, I didn't live back in that time. I would have never hung on that cross. And that may be true. But figuratively speaking, you deserve the wrath of God just as I deserve the wrath of God. In fact, there has only been one individual throughout all of human history that did not deserve the wrath of God, and it is him that hung on the cross. Why did he do this? Well, we said a moment ago that where sin is present, uh, God's holiness has been violated. And we might say it this way, that there is a death, a bill of death that is written out. We owe a debt, that's what the Bible teaches, for our sin, a debt we cannot pay. Our debt, the only payment that we could have made would have been to die in that place. And let me remind you of this, even doing so would not have vindicated the holiness of God. Even doing so would not have satisfied and satiated God's wrath. Even if we had died in our place, we couldn't have paid our debt. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because when a person dies and goes to hell, they die and go to hell forever. So their debt was never paid in that way. But Jesus upon the cross of Calvary took our place. He took our sin. He became our sin. 
Uh, whenever God should have wrenched back and smote you or I, He smote Jesus. And on the cross, our condemnation, you remember that He had spoke about condemnation in John chapter number 3. Uh, there's this prevailing thought amongst people that if I leave God alone, God will leave me alone and I don't have to have nothing to do with Him. But don't you understand, by virtue of being born into the human family, you already are at aught with God. It's not a question of whether you will be. You already are. And we were reminded last week in the preaching uh, that Christ tells, uh, tells Nicodemus that if you believe not on the Son of God, you're condemned already. On the cross of Calvary was the only place that the holiness of God could be satisfied and that the condemnation of man could be lifted. And there upon the cross, the reason that he asked this question, why hast thou forsaken me, is because he knew that sinners would look to the cross of Calvary and ask themselves this, if he's God, how can I get to him? And Jesus wanted to tell sinners all over the world that you can get to him because I was distanced from him. He'll never forsake you because he forsook me. You'll never have to pay for your sin if you'll receive me because I've already paid for it in your place. We see our condemnation was rent, but we're reminded, and this is the reason I read down to verse 51, that the curtain was rent. The Bible says in verse 51, Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Now this, of course, is speaking about the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And I'm sure you're familiar with it, but just be patient with me as I remind you what this was. In the Old Testament tabernacle and then later again in the temple, uh, this was the place, the tabernacle and temple where they met with God. And the way that it was constructed was there was an outer court of about uh, 75 uh, by, uh, uh, I believe, 50 feet or 150 feet, excuse me, uh, that was bordered by curtains all the way around. Within that, there was another structure uh, that was 45 uh, by 15 feet. And uh, there within that structure... Uh, housed the holy place and the holy of holies. In the holy place was the place where any uh, Levitical priest could go and they would minister. Whenever they would go in, they would turn to the left. They'd light the candlestick. They'd turn to the right, partake of the table of showbread. They'd proceed forward and they'd burn incense at the altar of, of burnt incense and they'd make prayers before God and they'd minister before God. And any priest could go into this place. But there was a place beyond that, a little room, 15 by 15 foot, no natural light within it. There was no candlestick in it. In fact, there was only one piece of furniture in this entire room, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box about the size of a remembrance table with upon it a uh, lid that had uh, two cherubs that with their wings outstretched beheld ever a place in the middle called the mercy seat. And there at the Ark of the Covenant, once a year, the high priest would come in uh, with the blood of a bullock and he would uh, place that blood upon the mercy seat and make atonement for the children of Israel for their sins over the past year. And only one day a year, one person under very strict conditions could enter into this place. Under pain and penalty of death were he to go in there in an inappropriate or in an unprescribed way. This temple was, or this curtain was a large curtain. It extended all the way from the floor to the ceiling, which by the time you get to the temple was many, many feet high. Uh, they say, and of course, I don't have this curtain, and I bet you don't either, so we kind of have to rely on what people say, uh, that it was several inches thick. It was a large, imposing thing by the time you get down to the temple worship that existed in the day of Christ. And the Bible says that when Christ cried out, and yielded up the ghost and died for our sins that that veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What did this signify? Well, the Holy Ghost doesn't leave us doubting or wondering. The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, 
Now, when these things were thus ordained, talking about the building of the temple and tabernacle, says the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. That's what I explained to you a moment ago. Now, what does it all mean? The Bible says the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. You see, to you or I, we might think of it just as a large, beautiful curtain. We might think of it as just a part of the infrastructure of the tabernacle. But to the Jewish priests, when they saw that curtain, it was a big glaring stop sign. It was an outstretched hand that prohibited the way into further fellowship with God. The Holy Ghost meant it to be a message to sinful man that you can never have perfect fellowship with God. Listen to what the Bible says about that veil in chapter 10, verse 19 through 20 of the book of Hebrews, the Bible says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. Literally speaking, that veil provided a barrier between man communing with God. But figuratively speaking, that veil represented the perfect, spotless, unbroken righteousness of Christ. Has it ever dawned on you that if Jesus hadn't died for our sin, all He would have done is stood as a bulwark, as a, as a spotless and pristine example that man would live perfectly before God? All He would have done would have been a condemnation to you or I because we don't live perfectly. We can't live perfectly. And had He simply lived and uh, died a natural death and not been made a curse and made, a sin, uh, made sin for us, then all it would have done is condemned mankind. God would forever look at the righteousness of Christ and say, Christ did it. But you can't. But instead, the Bible teaches us that Christ was made our sin. He was rent in two. He died upon the cross of Calvary. Why? So that we might have entrance into the presence of God. In other words, that veil was the way to get into God. And man couldn't get to Him, so God rent the veil. And Jesus is the way for us to get to God. But had He not died, we couldn't have got to Him. So God gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see the address of rending. I want you to turn over to John chapter 20 with me. John chapter 20. We have a second instance of the Lord Jesus using this term. John chapter number 20. It's resurrection morning. The Lord Jesus has risen powerful and victorious from the grave. But the disciples are searching for him. And there's a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene, out of whom the Lord had cast seven devils. And she loved the Lord Jesus, and she comes to the tomb and looks for him. And the Bible says in verse 11, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have delayed him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary... She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, 
For I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. We have the address of relationship. Relationship. Now, I will go ahead and admit to you that folks are going to, they have been arguing about this verse, and they probably will argue about this verse until God settles it all for us in heaven. But I will tell you my opinion about it, and you can take it for whatever you think it's worth. I see in this passage three things distinctly. Number one, I see a prohibited reach. Whenever Mary turns around, the Lord looks at her and says, Touch me not. Now this is the part that people argue and squabble about. People say that she couldn't touch him because he hadn't yet gone to the mercy seat and presented the blood and that it would somehow sully him. I I don't know if I ascribe to that for a various amount of reasons. Uh, the, The first of which is this. I don't believe he was on his way to the mercy seat and stopped off at the tomb to talk to her. You can believe that if you want. I don't think you're a, you're a bad person. I don't think you're ignorant or unlearned if you believe that. But I, I have trouble with that. I don't believe that's so. But beyond that, I find a number of other reasons that he would have said this beyond that notion. Number one, I believe that uh, in keeping with the Old Testament picture of the wave offering, that he probably was getting ready to once again appear before the Father to present himself as a wave offering. The Bible taught uh, that uh, whenever they were to give a a wave offering, whenever the harvest came in and they were having their feast, that uh, before they ever did anything else, they were to take a portion, the first fruits that had come in, and they were to present them and wave them before God as an offering unto him to show that they were appreciative of his favor and blessing. I'm also interested with the way the Lord Jesus says this. He does not say, I have not ascended. He said, I am not ascended. Now, when you speak about have, you're speaking about something in the past tense that you've done. But when you speak about am, you're speaking about a condition of being or existence, a quality of the way you are. In other words, if someone was to say, I have been sick, that's one thing. If they were to say, I am sick, you just let him pass on by at handshaking time. Amen. There's a difference between the two. Now, I believe my Bible is just exactly what it ought to be. I don't believe you ought to change that, try to make it mean something else. In fact, I would suggest this, that I don't think it could be said that he had not yet ascended to his father because the Bible teaches us that the first thing he did whenever he died was he descended into the lower parts of the earth and he led captivity captive. He preached the gospel to those in prison. He led captivity captive and ascended on high. So if Jesus is here, where's all the folks he's bringing with him? So I don't believe we have to go there. I believe we can understand what he's saying a little bit clearer when we understand that this word touch, it's used all through your Bible. Uh, Most of the time, it doesn't refer to the idea of just a touch, but it has the idea of clinging to. I believe what Jesus was saying here was not, get away from me, don't be near me. In fact, I sort of believe that the first thing Mary did when she saw it is she turned around as she had on many occasions before and flung herself at the feet of Jesus. I believe what he's probably saying is this, you can't hang on to me right now. I've still got work to do. We have the idea of the wave offering. We have the idea of touch carrying with it the idea of clinging. But then I'm reminded of this. If he says, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, it sort of implies, Mary, you can't cling to me now, but there's coming a day when you will cling to me. 
And it reminds me, not only do I see a prohibited reach, but it reminds me of a prospective relationship. In her day, it was prospective, but to us, it speaks about his priestly role. And I'll tell you just what I thought about. You can, you can connect the dots in your mind if you think they connect. If not, that's all right. We'll fuss about it. But Hebrews 8, 1 through 2 tells us this. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You remember he said, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. He was going to ascend. Forty days later, he would ascend. But he's saying, I'm not there yet. You can't cling to me this way. She was reverting back to that relationship that she had known of him in his earthly ministry where she'd fall at his feet and worship him and uh, lay uh, there and, 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 and in adoration she would heap praise upon him. And he's saying, you can't do that right now. This relationship has changed. Now the relationship is not that of me being the prophet of Israel, but now it's that of me being the priest. Can I remind you of this too, if you're still a little skeptical? Can I remind you, if, if you're a believer in the eye, idea that, well, uh, she couldn't touch him because she'd sold him. How do you explain the fact that a little later on, uh, whenever the women meet him on the road, they fall down and wrap their arms around his feet and worship him? There must be another reason. Hebrews writer says, we have a high priest. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. We have a priest. And in light of that, the Bible says in chapter 4, the book of Hebrews, verses 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest, seeing that we have a God that's ascended to the right hand of the Father, seeing that He's seated in the majesty of the heavens, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. There you have that clinging, right? Let us hold fast our profession. Now listen to this. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I believe he said, touch me not. He was saying, listen, Mary, you can't cling to me this way. But there'll come a day you will reach out and cling to me. But it won't be here at the grave. It'll be in the throne room of grace. It'll be there that I'm touched with the feelings of your infirmities. I must still be about my father's business right now. And by the way, he turns and looks at her and he says, Go and tell my brethren. In other words, it wasn't just that he had something to do. It was that she had something to do. He reminds her, Though you cannot reach out and cling to me now, there'll come a day when you will. When you will. We see a priestly role spoken of, but then... Notice the exhortation he gives to her, the instruction. We find a personal relationship spoken of, and this is where the Lord invokes the name of God. The Bible says, For I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren. Oh, that's precious. You know, he had never called them his brethren before this moment. He had called them his own. He had called them his friends. He had called them his servants. But he had never called them his brethren. That's interesting, because somebody can be your own and you can give them away. Somebody can be your servant and you can cast them out. Somebody can be your friend and that friendship can break. Oh, but if somebody's got a family tie, hey, how many of you know this is true? Like it or lump it, the family you got is the family you got. Somebody say amen to that. And listen, I ain't never going to be ashamed of him, but he'd have every reason to be ashamed of me. (laughs) But I'm reminded the book of Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed. He calls them brethren. The Bible says... He says to them, go tell my brethren. Tell them that I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. 
he's denoting the fact that there was a new relationship. That heretofore they had known God as a distant God, not as a personal God. And that they had known God only by proxy through Him being the Father of Jesus. But now they were brought into the family, as it were. The Hebrew writer says it this way in Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. I quoted a bit of it a moment ago. For it became Him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. You notice that? It doesn't, doesn't say they are all one, although we are one with Christ and one with the Father. It says we are all of one. You know what that means? If you were talking about somebody and you were to say they're a child of their father, they're of that. Or if you were talking about a country and you were to say they, they're of a certain country, right? Like I'm of hillbilly East Tennessee, right? Saying he that sanctifieth and they which are sanctified, they're all of one now. In other words, the father is Jesus' father and he's our father if we know Jesus He's Jesus' God, and He's our God if we know Jesus. The Bible says, For which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. There was a personal relationship now. And He uttered this unusual address to help us understand that now we would have a relationship. It wouldn't just be His God. It would be our God. I'll give you one final thing, and I'll be done. Turn over to Revelation chapter 3. Just a couple verses, and I just want to say a word about them, and we'll close. We have the address of rending in Matthew 27. We have the address of relationship in John chapter number 20. And in Revelation chapter 3, the Lord Jesus speaks once again. He's speaking, of course, to John on the Isle of Patmos. And He told John, the things you've both seen and heard, sit down and write them down. He's giving an address to seven churches. They were literal churches that were uh, alive at that time, were ministering, were, were existent at that time, extant at that time. A lot of people believe that they are representative of ages, of uh, the church age. And uh, certainly there is a practical application for these churches to be made as well. A lot of things we can learn from them. But when he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia, now if you've studied this, you know that the church at Philadelphia was the good church, right? That's the church everybody wants to be. Uh, you know, it's okay to be Ephesus, but you've lost your first love. So you really want to be Philadelphia, who has an open door for the utterance of the gospel. Uh, the church at Philadelphia is the only one that the Lord Jesus did not have any criticism or rebuke for. And he says to them this, verses 11 and 12. says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. I believe this is the address of reconciliation. Now, how many of you know that as with every doctrine that pertains to the salvation of the believer, there is both a positional and practical aspect? We are justified perfectly, completely, positionally right now, but we don't always live justified. We are sanctified perfectly, completely. The Bible says it this way in the book of Hebrews. By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Positionally speaking, we're perfect before God. But practically speaking, we don't always live that way. Reconciliation is the same way. For something to be reconciled means for it to be returned to its original and correct and appropriate position. And I'm glad to say, hey, that I heard the gospel one day and I got reconciled unto God. 
I'm glad to say, though I was an alien and a stranger, though I was alienated from the family of God, though I was far off from God, though I didn't deserve God, though I couldn't hear God, though I couldn't perceive God, that the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shined into my dead, darkened, blinded eyes and opened them up so that I might see who God is. And I was, ye who were afar off, now were made nigh in Christ Jesus. I was brought back to where God wanted me to be. But I'm also reminded that this reconciliation, practically speaking, isn't complete. Here's why. We understand God's omnipresent. We know that. We also know in a very literal and explicit sense that God is seated right now in heaven. Jesus is at His right hand. The Holy Spirit of God is the one that's present on this earth ministering right now in the hearts and lives of uh, God's children. He's right now indwelling each and every person in this room is born again uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ. But God is seated in the heavens. Now, you can say, well, that don't mean anything. Well, if it don't mean anything, then why is God one day creating a new heaven, new earth, and He's going to set His throne down on this earth if it don't matter where He's at? So God very much thinks it matters where he's at. So don't criticize. Don't take it as as me belittling his omnipresence. I know he's omnipresent. But I also know this, that though we are perfectly reconciled positionally, practically speaking, we ain't. Uh, You say, preacher, why do you believe that? Well, we ain't home yet. We're not at home with the Lord yet. We're still in these bodies of weakness and frailty. We're still in a world uh, that belongs at least uh, effectually to the influence of the devil where the heathen rage. We still live in a world alienated from the presence and glory of God in many ways. But the Bible says there's coming a day when we're going home and we'll see my God. And He's your God if you know Him. There's three things that are going to be reconciled. I want you to notice, first off, we're reconciled to God's home, verse number 12. By the way, you say, preacher, when's this going to happen? Well, didn't you see he just told us in verse number 11? He said, behold, I come quickly. This is going to become a reality for the believer when the Lord returns for his bride. Now, some of these things, I'm aware, will take place after the end of the millennial reign, but you understand, as far as God's prophetic calendar, for you and I, the next thing we're looking for... uh, Listen, the next thing we're looking for is not the Antichrist. The next thing we're looking for is not a peace accord between uh, Israel and and the Arabs. The next thing we're looking for is uh, is not for the two prophets to walk out into the street and to begin breathing fire. The next thing you and I is looking for is we're looking up for the coming of the Lord Jesus. So as far as this church was concerned, the next thing they had to be looking for was when he'd come quickly. And he says, when I do, he says, him that overcometh. How do we overcome? People get hung up on that. They say, oh, preacher, that means you've got to try. No, the Bible says that our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We don't overcome through trying. We overcome through believing. Through believing. He says, him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Boy, isn't it good to know one of these days we'll make our last move. One of these days we'll be in God's heaven. And the Bible describes it figuratively. We know that's figurative because God ain't going to turn us into a big granite pillar. What He's saying is you're going to be established in the temple of my God. No more to go in and out. No more to wander as pilgrims and strangers, never having a true home. It's never dawned on you that the best thing you can do is buy real estate for 80 years. One of these days we're going to be planted as a pillar in the temple of God to go no more out, to be at home in God's heaven with God's people, with those we've loved and lost, with those who have gone home to be with the Lord and to rest and rejoice in His presence. One of these days God's going to reconcile us into His presence. We'll be reconciled to God's home. Notice the second thing. We'll be reconciled to God's heritage. 
He says, I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. That's interesting. God's personhood and God's place are spoken of. And he says, I'm going to write these things upon you. Two things that are hated in this world today, it is God's person and God's place. The, those that know God are hated because of the presence of Christ in their life through the light of the Holy Spirit. And that place, that little place over there in the Middle East, oh, how much blood has been shed trying to get that little piece of land. Oh, how many wars have been fought trying to drive people off of that little piece of land. i got news for you. One of these days, God's going to settle it all. He's going to settle it all. It's funny, you hear this term Zionist all the time. That's a real popular thing there. You know, Zionist. Oh, Zionist. And uh, people will say, I've been asked, are you a Zionist? Well, it depends on what you mean. If what you mean by a Zionist is, is an apologist for every behavior of a Jewish person, then no, I'm not. They're human beings. They make mistakes. They do things wrong. I'm certainly not necessarily an apologist for their government, although I think we ought to be friends to Israel. But now, if by Zionist you mean that I belong, that that little plot, I believe that that little plot of land belongs to the Jews and to the Jews alone, and it doesn't matter what the UN says, and it doesn't matter what the Security Council says, and it doesn't matter what NATO says, and it doesn't matter what the professors say, because I have the authoritative word of God that the only piece of land he's ever deeded to anybody was a place called Canaan that he deeded to Abraham by faith, that every place whereon the sole of his foot would tread would belong unto him, and that it doesn't matter what the Muslims think, and it doesn't matter what the atheists think, and it doesn't matter what the infidels think, and it doesn't matter what the academics think, and it doesn't matter what the liberals think, that that part of land belongs to the Jews, and one day they will occupy it. Their king will sit on the throne of his father David, and he'll rule in righteousness and in authority with a rod of iron, and it don't matter if it hair lips every college professor from here across the globe, he's going to reign in Zion one of these days. So if that's what you mean by a Zionist, then yeah, I guess I'm guilty as charged. Two things God loves. He loves His people and He loves His place. And neither of them are appreciated today and neither of them are valued today. But there's coming a day where what God loves is going to be what humanity loves. It's coming a day when what God reveres will be what humanity reveres. There'll come a day when it don't, the heathen won't rage because they won't be allowed to rage. And we'll be reconciled to God's heritage It'll be His name written upon us and we won't have to be scared of the reprisal and the results from it and we won't have to uh, suffer the persecution that ensues from identifying with the God of the Bible. There's coming a day when we won't fuss and fight about that land. God's going to settle it all. We'll be reconciled to God's heritage. And then finally, and I'm done, there's coming a day we'll be reconciled to God's holiness. He says at the end there, I will write upon Him my new name. You know, the book of Romans talked about this in chapter number 8. You know verse 28 because you've quoted it a hundred times. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. You probably have it written on the flyleaf of your Bible or uh, as a part of your social media profile, whatever it might be. But have you ever read verse 29? The Bible says, For whom He did foreknow, He did also predestinate. You say, Preacher, does that mean He chooses people to heaven, chooses people to hell? No. It didn't say whom He predestinated, He foreknew. It says, whom he foreknew. Well, of course God knows who's going to be saved and who ain't going to be saved. But what did he predestinate them to? He predestinated them, those that he knows. He predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
there's coming a day when I'm going to look just like my God. There's coming a day I'm going to look like Jesus. If Jesus looked at Philip and said, Philip, have I been so long time with you and yet thou hast not known me? If you've known me, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. And now... And one of these days, Paul said, our vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. Paul said that we'll be conformed to the image of his son. If Jesus looks like the Father, and if I look like Jesus, I guess I'm going to look like the Father. And what that means is not speaking of physical appearance. It's speaking of the holiness of his character and of his personhood. Oh, my. Listen, I struggle. You struggle. (laughs) But there's coming a day we won't have to struggle no more. There's coming a day. This is what Paul talked about when he said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There's coming a day. We struggle. You struggle. I struggle. But there's coming a day that this flesh is going to be vanquished, that we'll be given a new body, and we won't have to fight the flesh anymore. John described it this way, and I'm done. He said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We're not waiting to become the sons of God. Now are we the sons of God. To as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know, we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. One of these days we're going to be reconciled to holiness. It's good to know it's not just His God, it's my God. And if you're here today and you've never made His God your God, you say, whose? I'm talking about if you've never made Jesus' Father your Father. If you've never trusted the same God that He talked about. If you've never trusted in Him as your Savior and received God as your God and Savior. There's never been a time when you've bowed your knee, confessed yourself a sinner, and asked God to forgive you and save you. Then there's no better day than right now, today. Today's the day of salvation. I hope you'll come to Him. Maybe you're discouraged. Hey, listen, I, I was riding to church this morning. I know I said I was done, but you'll want to hear this. I was riding to church this morning. My little boy, he said, Daddy, what's that on your beard? I said, I don't know. What do you mean? He said, what's that on your beard? I looked at Leah. I said, I don't know. Is there something in my beard? She said, no, I don't see anything. He said, that white thing. <laughs> said, well, son, that's a hair, and I'm going to get a lot more of them. You may be feeling your white hairs lately, feeling the groaning of all of creation together in pain. You may have been feeling that, that weight of your body bending beneath the weight and care. Isn't it good to know one of these days we're going to be given a new body? We're going to look like Him. We're going to be like Him. You may have been weighed down beneath the oppression and persecution of this world. There's coming a day when you're going to be seated in heaven together with God. You won't, hey, listen, you'll be in God's home. There's coming a day. Take courage, pilgrim. Take courage. Press on. It won't be very long. And we'll be at home with Him.